Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host for today, Emma Sandler, Senior Beauty and Wellness Reporter. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Paiji Yu, co-founder and CEO of Blueland, a company dedicated to reducing single-use plastic. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, we're equally excited to have you. Can you tell me the story of Blueland, how it began, and when? Yeah, so Blueland... The idea for Blueland actually came about um, when I became a new mom. Um, I became a new mom with my first son, Noah, uh, five years ago, actually. Um, Yeah, Blueland's been on the market for just three years, but we've been working on it for five years. And when I became a new mom, um, I breastfed him for the first 11 months exclusively. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And so when I was finally moving him over to formula, it was... A, you know, it was a really big deal for me. I was doing a ton of research, not only on what formula I was going to select, um, but also what kind of water I should use. I really started to question, you know, if how clean New York City tap water was and whether I was potentially better off using bottled water. And I was really horrified during that research um, to find out that regardless, regardless of if you're drinking bottled water or tap water here in the U.S., that our drinking water contains about 100, 100 pieces of microplastics per liter. And I think that was unfortunately the first time I started to really connect the dots between all the single-use plastic that we're consuming as a society and how it's ending up in our waterways and our oceans where it's breaking down into these tiny microplastics and showing back up in the water we drink and the food we eat and the formula I was making my my baby's son. And so at that point, I just made a decision um, just as an individual to do my part and really try to cut out all single-use plastic um, from my day-to-day life. And it was really interesting because as well-intentioned as I was, um, I realized that I just had no choice, right? It felt like everything came packaged in single-use plastic. And yeah, that's when I had sort of this mini aha moment, you know, myself being a serial entrepreneur, I realized that, wow, I could have such greater impact beyond my own tiny personal consumption if I could also find ways to um, give others, you know, more and, and better choices. Yeah. Now you just mentioned that you're a serial entrepreneur. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your professional background? Yeah. So I have been a serial entrepreneur for, geez, for for more than the past decade. It's going to date me. Um, I started my first business, Snapbet, um, after dropping out of Harvard Business School. And that was a mobile uh, fashion shopping search app. So it was a local app that helped our users. We had about 2 million monthly active users find um, great products and stores around them. And so that big aha moment for me was I had just finally moved onto a smartphone and realized I was walking around with a powerful computing device um, in the palm of my hand. And yet, you know, search in the physical world is still actually today quite difficult. And so that's what, you know, Snapbet was solving. And we partnered with a couple hundred of the uh, nation's largest retailers and brands to make that local product inventory available on our app. Yeah, Snap is still around. I need that in my life when I travel. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. So we got acquired by Price Grabber, which okay. was one of the largest shopping search engines at the time. Um, it definitely was an exciting milestone for me as an entrepreneur to get my first company acquired. Um, yeah, we moved our whole team over. And uh, after being there for about a year, I definitely got the itch to um, start something again. I had made so many mistakes as a first-time founder. I was, you know, I really just viewed that as my first act. And uh, I ended up helping 
to colleagues in the industry, also former entrepreneurs they had founded and um, sold Rulala, um, and we started a startup studio. And so this was 2013. This was still very early, early days in like direct to consumer. Like Warby Parker was kind of the only real example out there of D2C. And we had a thesis um, that you know has kind of proven out since then that we would continue to see categories and whole industries move direct to consumer. Um, and so we raised a small fund um, to enable us to fulfill our goal of launching one new business per year, one new D2C business per year. And so for the next four years, I then cut my teeth launching four businesses over four years, which is a little nutty, um, but extremely exciting and gratifying in a lot of ways. Um, we launched MGEMI, which is direct-to-consumer luxury footwear. Um, we launched Rockets of Awesome, um, direct-to-consumer kit subscription clothing, uh, Full Lane, which was a clean beauty multi-brand retailer, um, and then Trade, uh, a coffee marketplace. Yeah, so you definitely have had your many fingers in many different pies in that sense, from fashion to beauty to, you know, apps and tech. Uh, it seems you've really run the gamut there. Yeah, yeah. No, I've, I've, I've had the good fortune to have a, a really interesting um, set of experiences, certainly. Uh, but when, you know, when I became a new mom... It was interesting. All of a sudden, you know, I had my son and I wasn't sure what my relationship with work was going to be. You know, Mm -hmm. after I became a mother, I was very open to my relationship with work changing. I think, you know, being an early stage entrepreneur, a venture backed, a venture backed companies, um, you know, to be honest, work at that point, it was it was very 24 seven, you know, seven days a week, uh, you know, 52 weeks a year. And I. On the other side, uh, you know, on the other side of, of then giving birth, I realized that I still very much so loved working. I was very, still very much so passionate about early stage company building. But I developed also a, a deep-seated desire to find more meaning in my work. And so at that point, I think what had driven me so much to that point of just like the energy and the excitement and the challenge of um, of bringing a brand new brand to market um, of creating products that had never existed before, like that in itself was not enough. And I just felt a need to have um, more impact and, and feel like I was I was making the world a better place and, and leaving behind hopefully a better a world for, for, for my son and future generations. Yes, of course. So for our listeners who know Blue Land, they're probably thinking about the brand's focus on refillable cleaning supplies and are maybe even wondering why you're on a beauty podcast. But Blue Land did recently expand into body care. And I would love if you could tell us more about this move and the growth opportunity there as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Blue Land from the beginning um, has really been about our mission to eliminate single-use plastic packaging and to make it easy for everyone to be more eco. Um, in fact, you know, the first probably year of, of Blue Land um, wasn't about cleaning products at all. It's never been about cleaning products. It really was about this mission. And actually, we spent our first year exploring a wide range of categories, from toothpaste to shampoo to deodorant. Um, and ultimately, we really wanted to figure out what are the categories that we can really maximize our environmental impact um, and maximize the chance um, for us to really have that. And, you know, in that early research, we learned a lot of the categories I just listed, you know, we tested with consumers and we found that there were certain categories like toothpaste or deodorant or shampoo where it was really hard 
to change people's behaviors or convince them to switch into a brand that they've never heard of and also like a new format that they're buying from a new channel. And then we found that there were other categories like hand soap, which is one of the first categories we started with, or multi-service cleaner, where there was a lot more openness for people to try something new. And that's why in the beginning, you know, we made a very intentional decision to start with hand soap and uh, with with cleaning products. Um, at the same time, also, you know, given my background, um, my entrepreneurial background to date had been in fashion and beauty. And, you know, part of me definitely struggled with that. There, there is a tension when you're trying to, you know, build a, you know, responsible or sustainable business. Really the question of like, am I putting things out into the world that people really need? And that question weighed on me heavily. You know, for, for many years of my career, I was selling women new shoes every week. And, you know, part of me wondered, did she need new shoes every week? And the answer is probably no. But could I sell new shoes every week? The answer is probably yes. And so I just really loved the idea that we were, start- we were starting with products like hand soap and cleaning products. Everyone washes their dishes. Everyone washes their hands. These are products they naturally run out of and replenish and need to buy more of. Um, and so that definitely was a draw. But for us, you know, ultimately with every decision we make, it really is from a perspective of how do we maximize our impact? Um, and that drives our decisions around what categories we enter, as well as drives our decision around pricing and assortment and product experience. And yeah, so um, recently, like you mentioned, we've we've entered uh, body wash, which has been really a really, really exciting one for us. Um, Similar to our existing products today, for people that aren't familiar, you know, we sell our products as a reusable, refillable system. So with beautiful forever bottles and vessels and refills that come packaged in paper instead of plastic. Um, So you just have to buy the bottles once and you never have to throw away another plastic hand soap or body wash bottle again. And so, you know, we're really, we've been proud that we've revolutionized the categories in which we play, you know. Um, by removing water from the formulas and providing our refills as dry formats. So for example, what we did with hand soap is we we developed the first ever hand soap tablet. In fact, we developed the first ever uh, hand soap concentrate in the world. And how that works is, you know, you fill our refillable glass forever bottle with warm water. You just drop in one of our tablets and that's it. You know, after a few minutes, it dissolves and you have a full bottle of hand soap. And this dry format not only allows us to package our products or our refills in compostable paper instead of plastic, uh, but it also drastically reduces the emissions related to shipping because we're removing the water. And so when you think about body wash, body wash is another category where body wash is typically 70% water. Um, and because it's a gel, you know, that is why it's typically packaged in plastic. And so we did the same thing. We had the same opportunity with a body wash. We transformed it into a powder um, that comes in a really small sachet. It's like two ounces of powder. When you add it to water, it becomes 18 ounces of, you know, a really great, rich body wash gel experience. Um, And, you know, for us, ultimately, you know, that decision was one about impact. Um, You know, we developed this gel technology, which we're so proud of. I mean, this body wash gel, it's another first of its kind. It's the first ever powdered gel uh, body wash in the world. And as we thought about this gel technology, the ability to transform powder to a gel, you know, we could have chosen to apply it to another category in cleaning, like hand soap. 
um, or a dish, but we felt like we had really strong products there already, like that impact would really be incremental. And so we did a lot of work um, to understand like where we could really have the greatest impact. And yeah, that, that, that research led us to body wash. I mean, given the frequency and surface area that the body wash covers that uh, we tend to cycle through it quicker, you know, it tackles one of the bulkiest products um, that we use in the personal care and beauty space. Um, and so it really would allow us to, you know, achieve one of the greatest impacts in reducing single-use plastic. I think it's interesting as well that you're moving into more traditional beauty products at a time when we're seeing a lot of beauty and lifestyle brands moving into home cleaning. What do you sort of make of this and the relationship between home cleaning and personal care and just the general sustainability or even clean beauty conversation? Yeah, you're you're totally right. We're definitely seeing um, folks sort of cross that, you know, traditional border both ways. You know, I think for us, we, you know, we also did a lot of work just to make sure that we had permission um, from our consumers to make that, that transition. I think um, I would completely understand if it was easier to make the transition the other way, right, from personal care and beauty into cleaning versus vice versa. Um, but it was really reaffirming to hear, like resoundingly from our audience, that they really did view us as a lifestyle brand and really one that stood for our mission um, and not a, a brand that really stood in their minds for, for cleaning. And so with that, I think that gave us um, you know, so much increased confidence to to move that way. Um, you know, body wash has always been a top two requested product for us, actually, since we've launched, um, which is also interesting. I mean, even as you think about, um, you know, the the landscape of consumers that are leading more sustainable lifestyles, like, you know, bar soap is usually like an important piece of that lifestyle. Um, but Americans just don't love bar soap, if we're to be honest. And that's, that's another thing that like weighed heavily on my mind. I mean, we you know, in our household, try to lead as much of it, like as, as a zero waste lifestyle as we can as a family. And, you know, in my shower, uh, you know, it always like, I would always like glare at my husband's body wash because that was one thing, like he just could not get on board with, you know, bar soap. And so there would sit my um, quite civilized bar soap next to his like Costco sized thing of hunk of plastic body wash. And, you know, I think that's where, you know, we've always understood it as that as a brand as well, which is why we, we always talk about like, we need to make eco easy. We need to make it affordable and exciting and easy to use and just as effective as, you know, conventional natural competitors. Um, because that's what it's going to take. Like, we're not going to have great impact if, you know, we only scratch the surface of, of consumers who are willing to sort of make that, make that switch. Yeah, I think it's so funny that you're talking about people who don't want to switch from, you know, that hunk of plastic gel cleanser into a bar soap. And I'm only thinking about my father, who's almost 70, and he he uses Irish Spring, and I have not been able to get him to try a gel cleanser. It's just that people get very stuck in their ways, to your point earlier about things like toothpaste and how people just don't want to change that much of their behavior. I, I'm very curious, though, about, you know, with the current refillable products you offer, what it has been like to try and get people to adopt them when, when Blue Land first launched and what you're doing to sort of educate and encourage them. 
Yeah, no, you're totally right, which is why, you know, in the beginning, it was a really helpful insight when we realized, like, there were also certain categories that were easier and harder to switch people. And we also understood how resistant people were to behavior change. I mean, the first product that we explored as Blue Land that I was so passionate about, and I still use our own toothpaste tablets today, we're, we're toothpaste tablets. Like, we, I, we're making those in our kitchen, like, five years ago, and, you know, people were just like, absolutely not. <laughs> not going to do that. And you have to respect that. Like you, you, we're not going to be able to force people um, to make that change. And so, you know, from the beginning, we've been very aware that, you know, sustainable products have a bad reputation of being more work, of being more expensive, of being less effective. And we knew for us to really be successful in impact, um, we had to turn all of those sort of like up on their heads. And so that's really have guided, you know, everything that we've done. And that's why, you know, with body wash, you know, our body wash took three, we've, we've been working on gel since the beginning. Like it took us over three years to develop. Um, and we could have easily just come out with a bar soap or we could have easily come out with a, if it was like a powder body wash that you like sprinkle powder on your hands and like, you know, just like the facial cleansers I'm sure you've seen in the, in the beauty space. Um, but, you know, Barso was a great example of like, you know, there is a perfectly sustainable option in the market that will get the job done, but people don't want to do that. And that's where it's like, I think that's why our hand soaps and our cleaning sprays have been so successful because all you do is you drop that tablet in and that's it. Like there's no shaking or stirring required. Um, the tablets are $1.99, which for people that's important too, there's like a money-saving element to it as well. There's a convenience factor. They're very small and space-saving. We have a lot of customers that buy like 30 at a time and just keep them in a drawer. And, you know, I think it's it, it's really meeting people um, kind of where they're, where they're at. And that's why, you know, body wash was such an exciting um yeah, category, category to do go into. And again, doing it also in a way where from a sustainability, we felt like we were not making any compromises. Mm-hmm. What can you share about your customer? Are they kind of like you were, were there young families, new parents, or like what's that psychographic and demographic? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. And I would say that um, we have, Three. Like we have a lot of, you know, families like, you know, my own, um, you know, I would say young millennial families that, um, you know, parents had, you know, in the process of having children moved over or, you know, got religion around using like cleaning products with clean ingredients, especially cleaning products, um, oftentimes um, beauty products as well. And, um, more sustainable products is sort of like the next natural evolution in that. And I think um, that desire has definitely increased over the past few years. There's been a lot more media attention and social media attention, certainly around climate change and plastic pollution, et cetera. Um, you know, another demographic or is just um, sort of just the most in, more intense environmentalists. Like these are the folks that, you know, have to date, like willing to kind of pay anything and do anything to do sort of like the better thing for the planet. Um, And that's like a very important segment. I think that's a a segment that um, we're very early supporters of the brand. I would count like the zero wasters and that movement in that segment as well. Um, And just give us a lot of um, credibility and legitimacy as well. Um, And then we have this other group of of folks that... um, 
typically younger that just have a strong desire to, uh, you know, buy brands that really align with their values, um, that are just like very conscious consumers. And, you know, many of the legacy brands in the cleaning space that may have held a lot of equity with, you know, generations before them, um, you know, don't, don't with them. And they, they um, are just demanding, expecting more from, from the brands that they purchase with. Yeah. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Blue Land has received quite a bit of venture capital funding. I think the most recent was a $20 million raise back in February. What has fundraising been like for you, especially when Blue Land first launched and it was still a very nascent category, that is the refillable concept? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a a great question. Um, I would say that Yeah, our fundraising experience has certainly been night and day. And I think timing has a lot to do with it. I think timing has a lot to do with also the success that we've seen. And timing has a lot to do with the success that, you know, many people and and businesses see. Um, But, you know, when we were first working on the idea for Blue Land, um, there was a lot of skepticism. There was still a lot of questions as to did the consumer actually care about the planet? Like, would you know, was consumer were consumers inherently selfish, and would they go above and beyond? And was this still too much work for the consumer? And I think it's one of those things where, like, hindsight's twenty twenty, and now it's just like ESG investing is like all the rage, and it seems so obvious and clear now. Um, but that certainly wasn't the case, um, you know, just just a few years ago. And, you know, back then, even our decks, like, we really minimized um, the environmental aspect of our brand and really focused on, I remember that, I remember completely redoing our deck because we saw no traction. And then I had met with, at that point, like, probably dozens, 30 different investors and, you know, had no traction. And, What seemed to resonate instead was instead of talking about like, you know, our impact on carbon emissions and plastic pollution, talking about how because our tablets were, you know, 50 to 100 times smaller than a conventional alternative product that came, you know, cleaning space like 90% water, that this would drastically um, reduce our cost for shipping. So like to ship a tablet, it would cost 30 times less than to ship a bottle of Windex. And that would thus give us a structural cost advantage in a world that was increasingly driven by e-commerce. And so that became my story for my our first two rounds, really driving home. Like the world is be like is moving, increasing online, and we're shipping around all this water, and we'll be able to sell things at a lower price point, which will entice consumers versus, you know, some of these, you know, again, products that are 90% water, just it doesn't make sense to be shipping those around. Yeah, that's such an interesting approach. It's almost like we are not as sensitive to something like the inflationary environment right now, or even maybe the supply chain constraints. I don't know if you're if you were saying that you could ship more in a box versus like the usual. Um, but that's so interesting. Do you find that there is still some skepticism, though? I mean, I know at least the sort of better for you brands and companies that have at least gone public. And I'm thinking of the Honest Company, Beyond Meat, even Oatly, like they haven't really been doing well in the public markets, at least from a stock perspective. So I wonder like with the conversations you have with investors or even other people in the realm of the startup world, what the attitude is to that type of category at the moment. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think because that sediment has also um, 
yeah, we've gone through sort of like a range of of sediments there because I think, yeah, I would say maybe a year ago, I mean, everyone was talking about like the IPOs, like all birds, you know, with a strong, you know, ESG story um, and several others similarly. And at that point, it felt like, oh, you know, if you had a, you know, quote unquote eco angle to you, like you were golden and you could do no wrong. And I think now we're in a period where not just um, with sustainable brands, um, but also just brands, you know, generally, especially the D2C ones, there's uh, a much more intense focus on profitability and a sustainable business model, which I think is right. Um, but I think that, you know, that focus on business fundamentals, um, is not just applicable to us right now, but but to all business. And I think that's right. I mean, that's something that we've been focused on since the very beginning. I know we did ra- just raise a $20 million round, you know, certainly received, you know, a lot of congratulations all around. But I know we, my co-founder, John, and I definitely don't view it as like a, a milestone. I think for us, it just means like that just means like we needed the money to continue to do what we believe we needed to do. And the goal is to not continue not to be beholden to outside capital and to be build a business that is financially sustainable because that's the only thing that but that's that's going to be the only path at some point you need to build a, a real business um that can be long-standing um and that can not only be long-standing um but i do believe like the more successful you are the more financially you know attractive you are and independent you can be the more options you have like you know at that point if you can be a really strong in a financially sound, sound business, you know, I think my co-founder and I, we then have a lot more permission to go do more incredible things that we think are really important for for the planet. Um, I think companies like Ben and Jerry's are, you know, a great example of, of that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good example. So you're not quite popping the champagne bubbles or champagne no. bottles yet, but <laughs> soon, hopefully. So I, I did read that uh, Blue Line is currently earning about 50 to 60 million in annual sales. I don't know if that's something you care to comment on. I can. I'm, I'm not at liberty to comment at that, but can we are. We are doing. We are doing well, given um, I guess how many years we've been out in the market. Yeah. Can you tell me more about your plans and goals for this year, just from a general brand and business perspective? Yeah. Um, you know, I think from a brand perspective, I continue to want to make sure that we're focused in the right areas where we can have the most impact. We certainly don't want people to perceive um, our move into beauty and personal care as one where like, you know, we're just churning out new products. I think we're really proud to have innovation as a pillar and that's like true innovation. Like, you know, we have 40 patents and patents pending. We have a full in-house R&D team. We own all of our formulas. I think in that respect, we are really unique, you know, with, um, all the products that we've put out are sort of like true firsts um, of their kind out in the market. But that said, um, you know, as a company, we are very focused on, again, that impact and just making sure that, and, and we as a company also generally believe that impact is not going to be achieved by just turning out new products. It's making sure that we're creating um, incredible products, incredible consumer experiences. Um, and uh, obviously also just making sure we pay enough attention to our existing products on on the market. Um, so I think, you know, I think we're focused, it, we're three years in, I think we're still relatively young. So we're very much so still focused on strengthening that core, um, continuing to firm up who we are as a brand. I think there's a lot of things that we can be doing better as a brand still. I think 
you know, from a supply chain and operations and a sourcing perspective, we are so buttoned up and spend so much thought and time um, really doing the right thing and prioritizing the planet. Uh, I don't think we do as good of a job of talking about all of that. And I think that's just as important, not just um, to generate like a brand halo, but really also just to educate consumers so that they can know to demand more from other brands that they're purchasing from as well. We are so proud of our practices. um, And this is one year that we're definitely very much focused of making sure that we're providing that uh, just increased clarity around our mission um, and and all of our activities um, to that end, end consumer. When it comes to the refillable beauty and personal care products, how are you sort of talking to customers about the different approach or why they're better than other beauty brands? Because other beauty brands have been getting into the refillable sector or refillable approach. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's where... You know, I'm excited to spend more time, you know, talking through our, our processes and rationales because we we absolutely, I mean, I struggle on this one because I definitely want to celebrate better. I think the movement we've been seeing um, towards like refillable or even better materials, I think that's great. So I think that's my first sort of thing I want to put out that I definitely want to celebrate better. But I think what we're trying to do at Blue Land is also... Um, we want to push the industry to even higher standards, right? Like businesses like us do have a choice, right? Better materials are often just more expensive. They're available, they're just more expensive and they eat into profits. But I think the idea of maximizing purely shareholder value or profits is increasing also becoming an antiquated one. And so um, while there are better alternatives out there, I think we here are really trying to push ourselves to like, what's the best, what's the best, best, best thing that we can offer? And so for example, we're proud in the cleaning category at least, to be um, the first and only brand to truly promise no single-use plastic across all of our products. Um, and so there's no compromise there. You know, there's you know, a lot of refills that are coming in pouches now, like a lot of like liquid refills that are coming, like shampoos or body washes that are coming in pouches. Um, this one I'll speak to head on because it drives me nuts. Like you see then all the marketing out there about like this pouch is like 80% less plastic than a plastic bottle. That pouch is not recyclable, right? That plastic bottle, if it's a plastic number one or a number two, is typically curbside recyclable across most of the country. So it's actually, and there's actually a market then for that material and its afterlife. So, you know, our point of view is that's a much better method of delivering than the pouch, which I view as like a nice marketing message. And, you know, we've been really excited to see brands like Method recently move back from pouch to very large plastic bottles because as much as it's hard for the consumer to understand that that is what they also believe legitimately was better for the planet. Um, so there's things like that. And again, there's, you know, more um, education certainly that we can be doing on our side um, to educate the consumer on that. I think, you know, there's also been a trend of better materials, but still single use. And again, it's tough. I think that's also a move in the right direction, but again, you know, we strongly believe that reuse is so much better than single use. I mean, you know, glass is certainly um, oftentimes a better material than plastic, but in the recycling uh, the recycling rate for glass beauty and personal care products is just 15%. You know, the overall recycling rate for glass is still just at 25%, but that's mostly like wine and beverage bottles. And, you know, glass is a great example because people look at it and they typically think like, oh, this is eco, but if that's 
if that glass hits a landfill, it takes you know, over a million years to decompose. A million years. You know, plastic takes like 700 years. This takes a million years. And glass is also made from you know, non-renewable materials. Like it's made from sand harvested from riverbeds and seabeds. And, you know, we're going through sand a lot faster than than we are oil. And so there's a lot of complexity to all of this. And thus, it's going to be quite a challenge for us to figure out, you know, how do we, um, you know, start communicating, educating the the consumer. But yeah, for us, you know, we're doing a lot of um, this, this very deep research, just try to ensure that we're we're truly making the best decisions that that we can. Yeah, with all of that in mind, what do you think the future of household sustainability looks like? What else can we make refillable and where do you think that whole recyclability and reuse aspect also fits into that equation? Yeah, I mean, I really do believe that the future of sustainability or that sustainable home is one in reuse. It really is shifting this mindset away from single use um, into reuse. And I don't think there's um, an end to where that can stop. I mean, even as we think about blue land, like I would love to, right, over the next 10 years, 20 years, you know, however long it takes, like would love to um, create products across a range of categories from personal care to beauty to even, you know, packaged food and beverages. You know, those are other categories you think about, like, you know, the middle of your grocery store and just like all those snacks and everything that come packaged in plastic. And, you know, I do, I can envision like a blue land home that's filled with beautiful, reusable containers that are just like convenient and affordable to refill. Amazing. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. This was an amazing conversation. I'm so glad we were able to make this happen. Me too. I I, I really love this this chat. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And of course, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit that button.